As a boy, I definitely got interested in music. Early on, I wanted to play the drums. My poor parents weren't as excited about me playing the drums as I was. And so my mom influenced slash coerced me into taking piano lessons. I think that's probably how it worked. But my passion for the drums wouldn't go away so easily. So I kept bugging them about it. Around fourth or fifth grade, somewhere in there, apparently my mom relented. She came home one day from a garage sale with an old beat-up snare drum. I remember <laughs> it wasn't the best-looking thing. The snares on the bottom were all mangled, looked like they'd have been used to trap squirrels or something. The heads on both sides of the snare were beat up. There were divots in it. You know, the thing was just kind of held together loosely. She gave me a pair of sticks. Sticks looked like they'd been gnawed on by a beaver or some small rodent. But man, I was fired up. I laid that drum on my bed, which of course stifles, you know, suppresses the snares. So the drum, it just sounds terrible. It would have sounded just as good playing a cardboard box. But, you know, for me, it was great because it was, it was almost the real thing. And so um, time came for school, and I signed up for band class. And I remember before uh, the weeks leading up to that first day of school thinking, I got to carry this snare drum to school. And I didn't have anything to carry it with. And so my dad, being the resourceful guy that he was, found an old suitcase for me. It's kind of unbelievable the things that we used to do in the 70s or the 80s. I guess this would have been the early 80s. And uh, he found an old suitcase, and I put that drum inside of the suitcase and carried it to school. And I can still remember how the snare drum didn't, obviously, it didn't fit into the suitcase well. And so, you know, depending on how I was holding it, the drum would roll from side to side. And so when it would roll to the back of the suitcase, it would pull me back. When it would roll to the front, it would pull me forward. And I had a 14-block walk to school and that's, that's what I would do. I carried that suitcase with that stupid snare drum in it. I remember going to band class the first day. First of all, there were only, I, I'm, I, I only remember there being like five people in the band. Like you got a couple flutes and a cello and me playing the snare drum. And I remember walking up the steps to the band class, and I realized as I got there, first of all, everyone else had nice-looking instruments and decent-looking cases. Secondly, I realized I didn't have a stand for my drum. No problem, man. I was resourceful like my dad. I pulled the snare drum out, and I set the suitcase on its end, and I put the drum on the suitcase. And that is, in fact, how I started band. And I remember playing in a school assembly where I used that suitcase as a stand for the drum and it sounded awful. Again, I might as well have just been beating on a blanket or a table or anything. Man, I would love to have a video of that performance. Me playing that beat-up drum on top of a suitcase with those sticks. Probably in high-rise jeans, a couple flutes, some nappy-headed kid playing xylophone or something in a cello that was out of tune. That must have been so enjoyable for those poor students to have to listen to. And you would have thought we'd have learned, but I, I did that my entire, I think it was my sixth grade year, because uh, seventh grade, I went to junior high. 
And I remember thinking, I can't take this suitcase to junior high. Apparently, I had some standards. So my parents still didn't go out and buy a real case, not to mention a real snare drum. My dad took an old record player and ripped the guts out of it and figured out a way to stick the snare drum inside of it so that it actually fit rather snugly. Snugly? Is that a word? <laughs> it, it fit rather snug in there. But the problem is, well, first of all, it was an old record case, so I still looked like an idiot. Secondly, that thing was so heavy, I almost had to use two hands to carry it around because there were still parts of the, you know, record playing machine inside of it. And I can remember going inside a seventh grade band and these guys walk in with their cool black polyurethane, whatever it was. Snare cases, pulling out the brand new shiny aluminum metal shelled snare drums. Did I mention that my snare drum was brown? <laughs> it's remarkable that I ever learned anything about music. But then again, now that I think about it, maybe that was the genius of my parents. Maybe they were like, let's see how bad this guy wants it. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if my dad would say it that way. As a matter of fact, I'm almost sure that's a part of what was going on with him. Like, yeah, you can you can play the drums. Here, we'll give you the dumbest looking stuff, the heaviest, most awkward things to carry around. We'll see, we'll see how much you really want to play the drums. I was thinking about that story recently again and how strange it is that music for me started so inconspicuously, so awkwardly even. Like if any of us had known how important it would wind up being, I'm guessing we might have approached the whole thing differently. And I'm not upset at my parents about it. I mean, it's weird. I When I think back about all that, I don't even feel that self-conscious, which I think says more about me than my parents. Um, it's just strange how little things in life turn into big things. And music has been a big thing for me, not not because I've made a ton of money off of it over the years, because I really haven't. I think I get a royalty check now once a quarter. My average royalty check is about $23. I always make sure to show my boys just so they know how cool I am. So it's not been because I've made so much money, but rather because music became so influential and really helped form and shape the way I look at life. I think the only reason I've been able to continue to be in the church and to be a leader in the church is because I began to look at it in the same way that maybe I would approach a piece of music. You know, really good music is not music that is void of tension, you know, suspension and then resolution, the ebb and flow of all of that. Really good music is full of those kinds of things. And so it is with probably anything that we do, but certainly with the church. And when you work with people and you think about how God, the spirit of truth and life, is weaving its way through the lives of people and how people are weaving their way through the life of God, because I don't know which way it goes sometimes. There are moments of suspension and resolution. There's great moments and movements of tension and if one can approach all of that artfully and realize you're really just in the middle of this beautiful song and we're not to the end yet and songs are full of all different kinds 
of tension. If, if one can approach it that way, then one can see the beauty in all of it. And that's what's helped me uh, as much or more than anything. I mean, it's to the point now in my life where I'll go in and out of meetings. And sometimes I'll recognize that I'm hearing a type of melody or maybe even harmonies based on the people that I'm interacting with or harmonic overtones that are happening based on the interaction. Like when I'm with someone who is rude and demanding their way and hurtful, you know, I hear a certain type of music being played. Uh, conversely, when I'm with someone who's being authentic and in the moment and present and humble, I hear a different type of thing happening. It's like the sound is, we're intervolved with the sound all of the time. It's around us. And trying to tune into all of that has just helped me be a better, well, it's helped me be a better person. It's helped me be a better leader. It's helped me be a better follower. And by the way, I think your best leaders are your best followers. So again, it's just wild to think about the role that music has played in my life and how much I think about it. I don't know how exactly that intersects with your life right now. Other than one of the things I wanted to say was what you carry around with you, and I don't mean just your physical baggage, but the stuff that's going on inside of you, you, you never know. That small little song, that small little dream, that small little idea, you never know how it's going to influence you and wind up influencing others. And it may be the very thing, as awkward as it feels right now, as strange and as unwieldy as it feels right now, it may be the very thing that later on in life turn it, turns into something that really shapes how you look at life and how you interact with others. So whatever it is you're carrying around with you, carry it well. Give yourself space and grace to carry it. And lately, every time I say the word grace, I think of the word space. Like they're so synonymous to me. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Wherever there is freedom, there's the Spirit of the Lord. Freedom gives us the space to bring all of who we are into a particular thing. Space is grace. There's no judgment with the Spirit of the Lord. There's no shaming. You get to be who you are. All of your problems, all of your faults, all of your brokenness. And you carry things that are really, really important. And they may be small right now, and they may be awkward, and they may feel inconspicuous and insignificant. But they also might turn into the thing that actually saves your soul. And I think God is with you in those very small, inconspicuous ways. So I think I want to tell you to give yourself grace. And we have a whole Christian movement that encourages us to constantly forgive the other person and to think about the other person. And I think that that's good and true. Sometimes we do that to the detriment of ourselves. And I don't think we've spent a whole lot of time figuring out how to forgive ourselves and to give grace to ourselves and to carry the things inside of us well and to recognize that we don't have to be quote-unquote fixed internally in order to be, you know, good enough. There is no good enough in the kingdom of God. 
It's just you're a human being. You're loved. And you, you don't have to resolve all of the tension. The cross isn't a place where everything gets fixed. The cross is the place where everything is held together. So allow the awkwardness and the insignificant things to be held with you. And just breathe and give yourself grace and feel yourself being in the embrace of the divine mystery. And recognize that the song is going somewhere. It's going somewhere. And it's going to be really beautiful. You're probably just in the middle of a this suspended chord that's full of awkwardness and tension. But it's going somewhere, if you'll just let it. I put together a Zoom conference call recently. Are you, are you tired of the Zoom yet? I know there are days when I am, but then again, I can't complain because it is one of the things that has kept us together as well as it has, as well as we have over the last couple of months during this coronavirus time. But I put together a Zoom call recently to help a handful of people from, from all different walks of life, from different parts of the country, kind of create solidarity with one another around the idea of their faith evolving, devolving, revolving, and growing. It was a really cool conversation. And uh, I won't share all the specifics because some of the people are there a bit incognito if some of the religious systems knew that they were a part of the conversation, especially with me. They would probably get in trouble, so to speak. But So I won't share all the specifics, but I thought today what I wanted to do was share with you some of the general points that we talked about. And I want to locate the whole thing around freedom, because I don't know if you know this, but the text that we call sacred says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So I want to locate this in the freeing spaciousness of the grace of God that allows you to carry all that you have within you and to be here and to be on this journey and to know that you're in fact, accepted. So I don't know if you can relate to this, but a couple of days ago, I had software issues. I wound up spending most of my day troubleshooting. One of my programs had auto-updated overnight, and so when I woke up in the morning and turned the computer on, it automatically started the new version, which is fine, except the new version is incompatible with some of the other software that I'm running. So within a few seconds, you know, the computer was freezing up. And so I spent the whole day trying to figure out how to make that right. I recognized at some point during the day that I was feeling a variety of different emotions. So let me share them with you. First of all, I was feeling anger. Because, well, the whole thing was just frustrating, exasperating, and uh, that's the only emotion I could describe at the moment. I didn't want to be dealing with it, but here I was dealing with it. I was also experiencing some moments of confusion, some genuine moments where I was entering into the conversation either with a support person on the phone or looking up yet one more forum online to post one more question to figure out how to get the answers I was looking for. I was trying to connect the dots 
The whole thing was a bit confusing, um, which leads me to say I was also experiencing some fatigue throughout the day. I was getting tired in part, I think, because my brain was, you know, really working hard trying to figure out how to remedy the situation. And, you know, when you work that hard, especially for my brain, your neurons have to fire. You know, you form new synapses and new things are happening in your brain and it fatigues you physiologically. It's just the way that it works. I don't think it's a stretch to say that at some point I was feeling a type of grief over the loss of the day. Like, I feel like the day was just lost. Like, I just wasted this day in my life doing this. And I grieved that a little bit, I think, at times. I think also I definitely at times felt cynicism about the whole thing. I don't know if you relate to this, but there were moments where in between phone calls and emails and forums, I thought, now, wait a minute. The people who updated this, surely they knew this was going to happen to certain people. Is this whole thing just planned? I mean, is this like a planned obsolescence thing where they know that it's going to break? And so now I have to buy some kind of upgrade in order to fix it. And by the way, when I was in the middle of all of it, I would have been happy to pay some amount to get it all fixed so I wouldn't have to worry about all of it. That option wasn't presented to me at the moment, but but I was cynical, like, hey, surely you guys should know this. And are you doing this so that I will continue to buy other kinds of products and support you? So I was thinking about my software issues, my how my operating system had updated, but it wasn't working with some of the other programs that I was running. And then I started thinking about me and my faith journey. And I started thinking about you possibly in your faith journey. Because in a sense, what's happening is, for a lot of us, our operating system is being updated. We're learning new things. Our horizons are being expanded. Our souls are more expansive. And it's not quite working well with the other programs that we've been running. When this begins to happen, it's possible you might be experiencing a variety of different emotions. And I don't think this is a linear thing. It's kind of like when you go through loss, which, by the way, is what really this all is. But when you go through loss, there's no linear steps to grief. It's very nonlinear, and it comes in waves. It comes at times in ways that you never imagined would come. But I think it's possible that you in the middle of it might feel some anger sometimes. Just frustration over being in the situation that you're in. You didn't necessarily ask to be here, but now life has shifted and changed and your faith has shifted and changed and people don't get it and it's caused a lot of tension. And It's likely you might be feeling angry about that. You might be feeling confusion about what it is that you believe and how does it fit in with what you used to believe. And, you know, you've been trying to connect the dots, but it's not an easy thing to do. Sometimes these are complex things we're talking about, which can lead you to being tired. Because when you're trying to connect the dots, man, it just fatigues you on a physiological level, on a neurological level. Your brain takes up a lot of energy and it just makes you tired. You might be grieving. Maybe you're grieving days that you've spent in the past living under a fearful paradigm now that you see it that way, and you're lamenting and you're regretting that. 
Uh, you might be just grieving relationships that are being affected by this whole shift. Those are very real things. And might I say, you might be feeling some cynicism. Maybe there's a part of you that has, has been looking at your former religious leaders or your current religious leaders and thinking, wait a minute, have you known this all along? I mean, have you just been kind of stringing me along and you yourself, you don't really have all the answers? And why are you in this business if you don't have more answers? Or why are you in this business if you're so reluctant to admit that you don't have all the answers? You know what I mean? Like anger, confusion, grief, um, being tired, being cynical. I think all these things are a part of the whole journey. And if it helps you, I think it's all normal that you're feeling that and more. This journey is marked by a lot of deconstruction, for sure. But really what we're trying to get at is reconstruction. I'm really actually more interested in that. Now, left to my own, it would be about, it would probably all be about deconstruction because, you know, I like to blow stuff up. Who doesn't? And in the moment, you know, it kind of feels good to tear some things down. But you do that a few times and you realize, oh, that's, that can be damaging to others and to yourself. And in the long run, deconstruction has its place, but within the larger context of reconstruction. So, the point I want to try to make for all of us on this journey is that we're not throwing our faith away. We're just discovering or rediscovering the beauty that's been there all along. And it just takes a bit of deconstruction to get there. For example, and I think I've used this example somewhere before, but a friend of mine owns a handful of co-working facilities in Kansas City. I don't know, maybe around the country now. But they were renovating an old elementary school or an old high school in downtown Kansas City a couple of years ago. And up in the corner of the building, as they were renovating a particular room, they were pulling the wallpaper or the plaster, whatever it was, off the walls. And what they discovered underneath was this really interesting old mural. And it turns out that the mural had been painted by the students and the art teacher decades previous. Turns out there was only one living student left who could give them information about it. But what they wound up doing was taking all the wallpaper or all the plaster, whatever it was, off of the walls and just refinishing this beautiful mural underneath that wraps around the entire room. And it is stunning. It's a pretty amazing work. I've seen it. I think about that example a lot when I'm on this subject. Because in a real way, what a lot of us are doing is we're, we're not destroying the room. We're not going to get rid of the beauty underneath. We're just, we're just taking off the wallpaper. We're just getting rid of the plaster. We're just rediscovering the thing that has been there and the things that have been there all along. It turns out that Americanized evangelical Christian thinking in the West is just a type of wallpaper. And it's time for most of it to get ripped off so that we can rediscover the beauty and the art that's been there all along.
my favorite things about the reconstruction journey that I've been on is to learn about what the early church used to teach compared to what we teach now. And there are so many differences in a lot of different ways. And why wouldn't there be? Cultures are completely different. But a lot of the things that I've been taught that I was supposed to believe, that I was supposed to equate with the gospel, are not necessarily things they thought were the gospel. We take, for example, the idea of hell being this eternal place of torture and punishment. I mean, that's not what the early church was teaching and preaching. I mean, and if we're talking about the early church, you can go all the way back to the book of Acts, which were the acts of the apostles immediately following the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then his ascension and Pentecost. This is the beginning of the movement. And none of these guys are preaching this idea of you have to accept Jesus in your heart or otherwise you're going to hell. That's not mentioned at all in the book of Acts. That kind of presentation is not made in the early church for several hundred years, actually. I mean, the first 300 years, roughly, we refer to that as the early church until the Constantinian era happens in the early 300s. During all of that time, there was no official stance on what afterlife heaven or afterlife hell was like. I mean, the closest they got, because you got to remember, the Bible wasn't really organized until 396. So for almost 400 years, there was no official position. But even then, the Bible doesn't come about without things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Um, with respect to heaven and hell, the Apostles' Creed says, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and of life everlasting. That's it. The Nicene Creed, which comes after the Apostles' Creed, says, we believe that he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. That's it. They didn't attempt to come up with a dogmatic stance about afterlife heaven or afterlife hell. They recognized that even within the sacred text that they had ratified themselves, that there were some conflicting messages, that there were terms like Sheol and Hades uh, and Gehenna. And we read all of those in our, you know, from our English Western context, and we think it's obvious that it means a particular thing. It's actually impossible to harmonize all those texts into one unifying thought. Because of that, the great Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar says, We cannot presume that all will be saved, but neither can we presume that one will be lost. I love that. We cannot presume that all will be saved. But neither can we presume that all will be lost. What we do presume is the life of the age to come. That is that there is life and life abundant, and that there is love and grace and mercy. That's how we live. We live with hopeful expectation, but we really don't know. Okay, I could go further on that tangent. The point is, what those of us who are on this Reconstructionist journey are learning is that we're pulling off the wallpaper of Western Christian thought, and we're getting to the beauty underneath, and it's really substantive. It's life-giving. It's life-changing, and I'm really thankful for all that. The point isn't to just deconstruct and to blow things up. You might be thinking, but this is a really good thought. What else do you have to say? I'm glad that you asked. Let me also just say, 
for those of us who are on this Reconstructionist journey. This isn't something that you do, really as much as it's something that you undergo. This isn't something that you do, rather it's something that you undergo. To go, to undergo something means to go under. And that is how this feels. It almost feels like drowning at times. And you're pulled out in the undertow of the ocean. And of course, when you're going under, you're going to respond with panic. You're going to flail about. You're going to be anxious. There's no doubt about it. But then after a while, after you're pulled down and you realize that you're not actually dying, something happens like, I don't know, maybe you begin to develop gills. Maybe your lungs adapt and you're able to extract oxygen out of the water in a way that you couldn't do above the water. And now down becomes up and up becomes down. And after a while, you you go with the undertow and you actually learn to really enjoy it. And you realize that there is a whole new world down below that you never knew really existed. But before that, the point is, I don't really think this is something that you choose. I think most of us human beings just do what we do until what we do doesn't work anymore. I know my wife and I have said that many times. You just you just go with what works until it doesn't work. Even when people tell us something is not going to work, we stick with what works for us until it doesn't. And then even then, we have to bounce our head up against the wall a handful of times before we finally decide to change. I know for me, I didn't get into all of this reconstruction work so that I could have healthier theology necessarily. I mean, I'd like to say that I did, but I didn't. I got into this because of trauma. And I would imagine trauma is probably the reason you are going through your evolution in faith as well. I mean, there are different levels of trauma, but the reason that you are going through the evolution of faith that you are is probably because... Well, life has just forced you down a particular path. You weren't looking for it. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm not sure where you've been specifically, but I would say generally, it's probably true that you didn't ask to be in the position that you're in and that you've probably been put there because of something bad that's happened to your life. And I want to tell you that that's relatively normal. And that is just what it is. And it's not okay, the bad thing, but it's okay that you are now here in the middle of this situation, because that's how a lot of us got here. Finally, I want to say that for me, being pulled down, undergoing this thing, not signing up for it, but involuntarily feeling like I was being drugged down into the undertow, was a type of death, and it was and is a type of descent into chaos. But also, I got to tell you, it's a type of descent into love. And that the way I see it now is love and chaos are inseparable. They're two sides of the same coin. And they're so inextricably intertwined that you cannot have one without the other. And so all the while we're scrambling to swim out of despair and death and darkness, it's really possible 
that we're scrambling to swim out of the arms of love too. Because what I found is that down is not necessarily bad and up is not necessarily good. Because where can you go to flee the presence of God? Where are you going to go? You can't get away from him. He is with you always, no matter what. And so if you have to get drugged down, sooner or later, you're going to have to surrender, to acquiesce, to let go, and to go with it, knowing that God is with you. And I have so much more to say about that, but you'll have to listen to the other episodes. We've gone long enough today. I hope this has been helpful for you. I've rambled a bit, but the point is to help us all gain some kind of solidarity together as we're on this reconstruction journey together. There's a variety of different things that undoubtedly you've been feeling and are feeling right now. Be there. Be present. Let your feelings have a voice in your life. I mean, they don't have to define you. They don't have to run the show. But to ignore them is not a healthy thing either. So let them speak, acknowledge them, and then bring it all to God. And may you be held. And may it all be held in the divine arms of love. <laughs>